that working? Great. The batteries fell out a few minutes ago and I forgot to, to restart it. So, Well, it's a pleasure to be with you all today. Uh, the sweater joke's already been told. But uh, I did laugh last night when I realized that I was going to have to talk. To, I brought a jacket and tie. Uh, but my jacket and tie, they arrived in, in Houston. And they were unloaded off the plane. But apparently, uh, there was nobody to put them onto the conveyor belt. Uh, so I suggested to the man next to me in the line that we joined the union. And then we could go out and fetch them ourselves. But uh, it was uh, too late to, to qualify for union membership. Uh, I want to speak uh, today, I know it's a missions weekend, but I've become increasingly convinced over the last few years that uh, the mission is not just, well certainly it's not overseas, it's certainly here in our own country, and I think the mission is even within our own churches because of the dramatic changes that have taken place generationally over the last 20, 30, 40 years. Some of you will be acquainted with uh, the book that I published it in 2020, I actually submitted the manuscript in, in 2019. Uh, I wrote that book in part because I myself was intrigued by some of the changes that were clearly taking place uh, within society. I was uh, pastoring a church at the time and was acutely aware that uh, younger people in the church, and by younger really I meant anybody under the age at that point of say of 35, thought about certain things in a dramatically different way to that in which I did myself that something very strange and interesting was taking place within our culture. And so the origin of the book was really uh, a personal uh, desire to try to, to work through those issues for myself. I've done a lot of thinking about those issues since. As I say, the book was actually completed four years ago. I've spent four years uh, thinking further about those issues, uh, discussing the issues in class at Grove City College, and giving lectures around the country on it and getting uh, some very good questions and some very good conversations going as a result. And so what I want to do today is this. The first two lectures will really be setting the scene. There's not going to be anything in some ways distinctively Christian about the first two lectures. What I'm going to try to get at is what has gone on within our society that has led to this transformation in the way that people think about themselves and think about other people and think about their connection to the wider world. And then in the last lecture, I want to try to bring forward some proposals to how we might think about moving forward in this uh, moment in which we find ourselves. It was the, uh, the great English Christian ethicist Oliver O'Donovan, reflecting in the 1980s, actually, he was reflecting on this, reflecting on uh, his role in the pro-life movement of the 1960s and 1970s, made an intriguing comment. And the comment was this, that the one thing that had really caught him off guard was that the weakest argument of the pro-abortion lobby, the, the argument that he did not consider uh, to be really worth addressing in any great depth, had ultimately proved to be the strongest argument at a cultural level for pressing for the liberalization, of course, they're talking of Britain, of British uh, abortion laws. 
The weakest argument, the one that he couldn't be bothered to address because he didn't think anyone would believe it, is this. The weakest argument is that uh, the baby in the womb is merely part of the woman's body. As an ethicist in the 60s and 70s, as a Christian ethicist in the 60s and 70s, he thought that was such a weak argument. It was not even worth bothering addressing at any significant level. As we all know, of course, that is kind of the strongest argument in many ways in the culture. It is the argument that is displayed on banners at uh, typical pro-abortion rallies. It is the mantra-like phrase that will be repeated when abortion activists are interviewed on the news. And yet in the 60s and 70s, Oliver O'Donovan, I think one of the sharpest ethical minds, certainly that Protestantism has ever produced, did not consider it to be an argument worth addressing. And in an essay on this issue, he reflects on why he was wrong-footed on this, why he got it so incorrect. And his conclusion is this. The weakest argument proved to be the strongest because actually it resonated with the way people imagine themselves to be. It resonated with that deep cultural commitment we have in the West to the idea that human beings are free and autonomous. We are, in a phrase that I will uh, return to again later in this lecture, and probably in a later lecture, we are, according to Jean-Jacques Rousseau, the, the great Genevan philosopher, uh, born free and everywhere in chains. And that, O'Donovan said, was the great myth that gripped the imagination of society and made the weakest argument that the baby in the womb was merely part of a woman's body into culturally the strongest argument. O'Donovan there, I think, is pointing to an important truth, and that is we might say that the struggle for the soul, particularly the struggle for the soul today, is also a struggle for the imagination. I think C.S. Lewis, I'm not sure that he ever puts it in those terms, but I think C.S. Lewis understood this, that the battle for the soul is also a battle for the imagination. Those of you who've read the book will know that I'm very influenced by the Canadian philosopher Charles Taylor, who has this rather awkward term, but I think it's a very useful term, social imaginary. It's awkward because he's using the term imaginary, which is typically an adjective, as a noun. One feels it should be social imagination. For some reason, he doesn't uh, go down that route. He talks about a social imaginary. He talks about a social imaginary when he's dealing with philosophy and the way people think, because he makes the, the point, and I think it's a good point, that the way most of us, all of us, in fact, think about the world most of the time is not because we've thought things back to first principles. It's because we intuitively imagine the world to be a certain way. By and large, we don't think in terms of arguments. We feel. We intuit. And that's not necessarily a bad thing. Uh, if we had to, if every person had to think everything back to first principles, Nobody would morally develop very far because there are a whole heap of things that really you just need to intuit. 
trivial example. When I was uh, about 11 years old, I went to, it was a, a state-run, what you would call a public school, uh, all-boys school in, in the UK. It was a grammar school. You had to pass a test to get there. Uh, grammar schools were essentially schools designed to allow boys from humble backgrounds to get a sort of elite education and to sort of move to uh, a higher class. Uh, and I remember in, in one of the first school assemblies uh, in this dark wood-paneled hall, uh, uh, hall with great paintings of old headmasters all around and the current headmaster comes out in his academic gowns and in the middle of his speech he, he makes this comment. He says, uh, remember boys, uh, intelligent boys play rugby, stupid boys play football. We were a rugby-playing school. You, to understand that fully, you have to get into the English class system, elaborate. But what I would say is this. When your headmaster in a darkened hall full of paintings of old headmasters tells you that, aged 11, you believe him. And it changes your attitude for all time. Uh, I still love rugby. I will watch what you call soccer with my, my sons, uh, but even as I'm watching the soccer, I hear my headmaster's voice saying, Behold, the stupid boys, as they run around on the, the pitch. It's intuitive. My response to sport is an intuitive one. When I leave the hall today, I will leave probably through the back doors. I cannot explain to you how particle physics works, but I intuitively know that doors work better than walls for exiting. When you think about, you know, these are sort of silly examples perhaps, but when you think about how you think morally about the world, you know, very few people have read any great texts on morality or ethics. We tend on the whole to intuit our morality or our ethics. Our parents will tell us something when we're young and it becomes sort of part of effectively who we are. We instinctively think that way. Charles Taylor, when he uses the term social imaginary, is really getting to the way that society as a whole does that. Society as a whole shapes the way we imagine who we are, shapes the way we relate to the world around us. When you think about the strange things that are happening at this moment in time, particularly strange for those of us perhaps who are a little older, and have lived through the 70s, the 80s, the 90s, and so on. Think about the strange things that are happening. The idea that somebody can claim that they are a woman trapped in a man's body uh, 30 years ago would have been ridiculous. Then it became plausible. Now it's almost a hallmark of political orthodoxy to affirm that. Think about the breakdown of civil discourse. I'm very struck uh, when I was growing up that if a politician uh, in a public setting had used a profanity, uh, it would have been very damaging to their career. I'm hard-pressed to think of a politician right or left in Britain or America who does not routinely pepper their public statements with foul language and profanity. We've gone from Richard Nixon in the 1970s uh, being sort of holed under the water because of that little phrase, expletive deleted in the Watergate tapes, to a series of presidents who do not hesitate to use the F word in public. Uh, that's A, appalling, but B, indicates a dramatic cultural shift. 
that profanity is now a vote winner, not a vote loser, tells us something. We live in a time when old identities are collapsing and new identities are rising. And the question is, is there an underlying unifying factor? What's going on in the social imaginary? What's going on with our intuitions and the things that shape our intuitions that has made all of this plausible? Well, that's what I want to explore in the first two lectures. First lecture, I'm going to look sort of more at intellectual roots. And then the second lecture, I want to address something I don't really address in the book, uh, but is the, the big question. So how is it that people who don't read Rousseau, Freud, Nietzsche, etc., 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 come to have their philosophy as their own unspoken intuitions? First thing. Notice in our society that we're living at a time of the breakdown of traditional institutions. If you had been born, let's say, a hundred years ago, your identity would have been uh, founded probably in three, what were at the time, pretty stable institutions. First of all, there's family. Where do we get our identities from? We tend to think of our identities as monologues, particularly today. I can be anything I want to be. But in actual fact, we get our identities from interacting with those around us. Family provided a powerful identity for a long, long time. If you read Russian novels, uh, one of the reasons why Russian novels are so long and at least the hundred pages can be so, first hundred pages can be difficult to follow is the characters have different names. You might have a diminutive. They'll certainly have a patronymic. Patronymic tells you who the character's father was, and that speaks of a society where your identity really is intimately connected to who your people are, who your father is or was. We have a kind of folk memory of that with surnames today. But by and large, surnames don't fulfill the same powerful function today they would have done once upon a time. Think about the family. Think about how important it was when you were growing up. Maybe you were bullied at school, but you grew up in a stable family. Whatever happened to you at school, when you went home, mum and dad loved you and you knew who you were. They gave you a solid identity. Think about the effect of a world where the family is in a kind of free fall. I bet if you had a room of 100 people and asked them to come up with a definition of family upon which everybody in the room agreed, you would not be able to find a consensus. Maybe if you had 10 people, you wouldn't be able to find a consensus. Family has been transformed. The advent of no-fault divorce, I think, was absolutely critical to this. Uh, I am not one of those who thinks that marriage is redefined in 2015 with Obergefell v. Hodges, the Supreme Court uh, ruling in the gay marriage uh, and the Constitution uh, discussion. I think marriage is redefined in 1970 by Ronald Reagan, governor of California, when he signs into law what I believe was the first law allowing for no-fault divorce. I'm told he came to regret that, and so he should. One of the most damaging pieces of legislation ever passed in the United States of America. That turned marriage into a sentimental bond and transform the nature of the family. Kids become collateral damage at that point. They don't become the reason we have marriage laws in the first place. They become collateral damage. The family is in collapse. And think about how that affects 
how one thinks of one's identity. Think of the church. Church is now very weak, really. Again, it's, a, it, it's, a, it's an odd story. I was talking about this yesterday. It was a long day yesterday. I taught two classes at Grove, literally swung by home to pick my wife up, then headed to the airport for a day of delays and lost luggage. It was a real great day. Uh, so my change, you know, I haven't got a change of clothes, so if you want to ask me a question but stay a couple of feet away, I won't be offended. I completely understand where you're coming from on that point. Think about the church. Think about freedom of religion. Freedom of religion is a great thing. I don't want to live in a country where the government tells me where I have to worship and how I have to worship or bans me from worshipping. One of the, uh, the great things about uh, the American experiment is freedom of religion. If you read Tocqueville, Democracy in America, something that fascinates him because he has no analogue in 19th century Europe to compare what's going on in the United States. But Tocqueville also observes that it sort of changes the nature of the church as well. In a world where you have freedom of religion, power tilts towards the congregant. I made this comment to uh, students yesterday. I said, when you have freedom of religion, the gravitational pull is towards religion becoming a consumer commodity because people can buy the religion they want or they can leave it on the shelf. Throw into the mix the motor car, the automobile, and the thing gets supercharged. The institutional church stops having the authority it once had. Religion becomes a matter of choice. It's a fascinating comment by Charles Taylor when he makes the comment that uh, you can believe the same today as a Christian believed in the year 1500. You can believe the same things. Jesus is God, manifest in the flesh. Jesus died, crucified, rose again for our sins. You can believe that in the same way as somebody in 1500 believed that same content. But Taylor says, you can believe the same things, but you cannot believe in the same way. Because today you make a choice to believe. I always love uh, uh, pulling, well, provoking slash pulling the legs of my Catholic friends on that one. Say, today even Catholics are Protestants because they choose to be Catholic. You can choose not to be Catholic, and therefore you're a Protestant in a very deep sort of way. But think about what that does to the authority of the church. An external, solid marker becomes more and more fluid and less solid. Family is less solid. Church is less solid. Think about the nation. I mean, very interesting, a couple of things. Uh, I've, my wife and I, we emigrated to the United States, I think, on August the 16th, 2001. So we've lived in America, really, from the moment 9-11 happened to the present day. And we've seen the dramatic changes. Uh, I, I, had, I was giving a lecture a few months ago in a church, and a, a young man, actually, it was slightly worrying. They closed down the questions, and suddenly this guy gets up at the back, and starts to stride towards me at the front, and he's holding something in his hand. And I can't see what it is. And I'm thinking, is this the moment I dive for cover? You know, I've just given this lecture on the trans issue, and I'm thinking, man, is this the moment that you know, I get rubbed out? Have I got to jump? Turns out it was his cell phone. But uh, 
he asked the question, he says, has America always been this way? I was about 20, I guess. And I was able to say to him, no, I said, in the space of your lifetime, I've lived in America the whole of your lifetime. I said, and America is no longer recognizable today as the country that I emigrated to 20 years ago. I've lived through this vast and dramatic change. It's played out in high speed before my eyes in that kind of weird immigrant insider-outsider thing, seeing it unfolding before my eyes. America has dramatically changed. Think of the 1619 Project. I have no comment to make on the, uh, the, the historical integrity of that project at all. Uh, what I would like to draw your attention to, though, is its existence. When a nation starts to debate what I would call its myth of origin, and by myth there, I don't mean it didn't happen. I mean the sort of the C.S. Lewis way, the story that gives meaning. When a nation starts to decide it's debate its myth of origin, 1619 or 1776, something very deep is going on in the identity of the nation. The nation has an identity crisis at that point. I'm intrigued at the lack of uh, reference in the news today uh, to the word un-American. When my wife and I moved here, it was always in the news. It was a weird word because un-English is, it just sounds weird to an Englishman. Does it mean, you know, un-English is preferring coffee to tea or something like that. It's not a very serious thing. But in the early 2000s, being un-American was a serious thing. In the 50s, of course, you have the House Un-American Activities Committee. It's a serious thing. But for something to be un-American, you have to have a very coherent concept of what American means positively. I think when the word un-American drops out of language... Well, it drops out of common use. It's an interesting question to ask, has the concept of America become so equivocal or so fluid that its negative no longer means anything? Fascinating. Nation also is in flux. So we live in an era where external markers of authority, traditional external markers of authority, family, church, nation, or earlier we might say community, no longer offer strong grounding. And where you don't have strong grounding, where you have a vacuum, things will move in to fill that void. And that's what I want to talk about. What I want to talk about in the remainder of this first lecture is what I call the rise and strength of the first person. I. We tend to think of ourselves as individuals, particularly in America fascinating Catholic philosopher Augusto del Noche in an essay in 1970. He's talking about the sexual revolution. He says, the sexual revolution will be stronger and triumph more thoroughly in America than anywhere else in the world, not despite its Puritan heritage, but because of it. And he goes on to make a point about individualism, a country that prides individual conscience so much is always going to be vulnerable to this kind of thing, because the I, the I and its individual and personal desires lies at the heart of the story. First person has an interesting uh, lineage. Uh, my friend uh, Ben Story, he's a Montaigne scholar, uh, tells me that it's Montaigne, the 16th century French essayist, who really starts to use the first person in his writings more than anybody else. Everything, we might say, is about him. 
I becomes critically important. We get that reflected somewhat philosophically in uh, Descartes in the uh, 17th century, when Descartes is looking for certainty in this sea of uncertainty that Copernicus has unleashed, that the Reformation has unleashed. Descartes is looking for that place where he can stand and find something solid. I think, therefore, I am. The one thing that he cannot doubt is his own existence, because in doubting his own existence, he affirms his own existence by that very act. The I moves to the center of philosophy. Rousseau and his notion of the noble savage develops the idea that you are born pristine. It is society that distorts you and perverts you. Rousseau will go as far as to say that as soon as you have laws, you know that something's gone wrong. Because in actual fact, you and your natural feelings and instincts, left unspoiled, should be a sufficiently sound guide to living a moral and upright life. And what Rousseau does there as well, of course, is he shifts towards thinking that emotions, sentiments, are important. And so they are. I say the students' uh, class, if, uh, when I'm teaching this, if you look out of the window and you see an old lady being beaten up, and you have to Google whether that's a good or a bad thing, we have a word for you. You're a psychopath. And that's not a good thing. It's not a good thing. Human beings are not brains on sticks. We have emotions and feelings, and they're an important component part of who and what we are. What you get with somebody like Rousseau and then his heirs, the Romantics, is this. An increasing emphasis upon those emotions as authoritative. An increasing emphasis upon the feeling I that is going to be so critical. Why is that significant for what I'm talking about today? Well, think about it. Let's jump to the, to, the, to the pressing issue of the day, the trans issue. If 100 years ago you'd gone to your doctor and said, I'm a woman trapped in a man's body, your doctor would have said, that's a problem. It's a problem of the mind. We need to work on the mind to bring it into line with your body. If you go to a doctor today with that statement, he may be legally obliged to say it's a problem of your body. We need to bring your body into line with your feelings. I was having, I was at a banquet in the last 12 months, and I found myself sitting next to a pediatrician. And I asked him, uh, would uh, 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 the gender dysphoria, would would a trans condition uh, be the only pathology where you would have to grant the patient the right of self-diagnosis? And he said, Pretty much, yes. It's interesting, isn't it? Interesting. But just think culturally what has to have happened. Now, technologically, we'll talk about this in the second lecture, technologically, a lot's happened in that hundred years between those two different uh, statements by two different doctors. But think about what has happened culturally. Culturally, inner feelings have become decisive and authoritative over who we are. We are what we feel. What has happened there is the inner space has been granted a powerful authority that it did not possess before. We see this in other ways. Uh, 
three weeks today, I'll uh, hopefully be at the Grove City graduation. I'm always struck at American graduations how all the students, uh, I would say, desecrate their graduation robes. They paint things on their mortarboards. They wear different clothes. Some of them wear dreadful footwear and things like this. And so when I graduated uh, in 1988, uh, all the, the men, and I'm assuming the same happened for the women at my college, all the men had to line up against a wall uh, and raise our trousers. I'll translate, that's pants. Uh, pants, though, for me, is underwear, so I didn't, you know, didn't want to embarrass my wife. Uh, we stand there. We have to raise our trousers by three inches so that the head porter, a fierce man in a funeral suit and a bowler hat called Mr. Monument with a fob watch, walks along the line and checks the color of all of our socks. Because if you're not wearing black socks, you don't get to graduate. Everybody has to dress the same. I would say there you get a, a glimpse, an important glimpse, of two different philosophies of education. Over here, for education is all about self-expression. Doing your own thing. Graduation is about finding your calling and your place in the world. Where I graduated from, it was about joining the team. There was a reason, actually, why my headmaster dissed soccer and exalted rugby. Because rugby was a vital part of the curriculum at my school. Why? Because in a rugby game, you're trained to be part of a team. Team sports were at the heart of English grammar school education. Because that was where you learned that the individual only had significance because he connected to the team as a whole. In the second lecture today, I'm going to talk a little bit about music and dancing. I think we can make the same point relative to the history of music and dancing. The power of the eye, the expressive eye, deeply ingrained in our culture now. Deeply ingrained. Education is only one aspect of it. Next phase of the intellectual story, I think, is this. Well, once the self gets psychologized by figures such as Rousseau, then it gets sexualized. The key figure in this is Sigmund Freud. He's not the only person doing this, but I think he is the most brilliant advocate of it. Freud, in some ways, has a much more realistic understanding of human nature than Rousseau. For Rousseau, all the problems with humanity stem from culture, from socialization. Everybody is born basically decent, but then when you get into society, you start to compete. You become envious. You start to work for number one in order to feel superior to the others around you. For Freud, I think, much more accurately, he understands human nature is dark. Actually, we are not noble savages. For Freud, we are deep, dark savages. Freud would say, think about those dreams you have where you do crazy stuff. Uh, sometimes it's so embarrassing you wouldn't even tell your best friend what you dreamed about lest they thought you were a weirdo. We all have those dreams, and Freud would make the point that actually that's the real you. That's the real you. You have the ego and the superego keeping that at bay. But the real you is the dark, violent, sexual stuff lying just below the surface, occasionally 
popping out. So maybe you've been in an argument with somebody and you've suddenly lost your cool, you've flipped your lid very uncharacteristically, and maybe you might say to them, I don't know why I did that, that wasn't me. Freud would say, actually, that is you. It's the polite stuff that isn't really you. The real you is that explosion. Freud, I think, has a much better handle on what it means to be a human being, and he does this one thing that has cataclysmic significance for the present day. Freud not only sees us as uh, defined by that dark, swirling id that lurks below the surface, he sees that id as profoundly sexual. And in a famous work, Three Essays on Sexuality, he actually provides a taxonomy of growing up where he says, you know, at any stage of human development, sexual desires will be directed in certain ways. What he does there is he says that the core of what it means to be human is sexual desire. And in doing that, he really shifts the whole nature of sex from something we do to something we are. And that, of course, lies at the heart of modern conceptions of identity. Think about the LGBTQ. I think actually we factor out the T and the Q. They're a little bit different. But think about the L, the G, and the B. Uh, what do they assume? They assume that a key part of identity is rooted in the nature and direction of sexual desire. About 12 months ago, I was doing a Sunday school at a church. Uh, it's actually a PCA church down south. And a young man, I guess he was 12 or 13, came up to me afterwards and uh, started to have a conversation. And in the middle of the conversation, he told me, he said, he said, I used to be bi, but it wasn't working for me, so now I'm straight. That was a fascinating conversation. Uh, you know, you get, you know, I've been a pastor for a few years, so you have some weird conversations. And you learn to sort of, I guess like Freud, just nod and... It's as if you've not heard anything unusual at all. But in my head, I'm thinking, this is fascinating. This is very strange. And as we continued to talk, it became very clear to me that this young man had had no sexual experiences at all. He was not a sexually active young man. He was simply identifying himself in terms of the direction of his desires. It's interesting. Interesting phenomenon. Sexual desires have come to fulfill that function. Freud makes that possible. Freud, if you like, provides us with the conceptual framework for thinking in that way. Freud shapes our imagination on that point. I think it's just as an aside, it's one of the reasons why debates within the church relative to sex and sexual identity have proved so uh, difficult at times. Because, of course, the Bible doesn't think in those terms. The Bible has a lot to say about sex, but it's typically about behavior. You can move from the Bible text to addressing the question of sexual desire as identity. But it's not a straightforward move. It's not as similar as saying, you know, should you kill? No, the commandments say thou shalt not kill. It's a little bit more complicated to make the move from sex as behavior to the implications for that as sexual desire as identity. A little bit. And I think that's proved some of the reason for the contested nature of these discussions within the PCA and indeed within other denominations. Freud sexualizes. And oh, by the way, that's why I, would, uh, I, I hesitate 
I would, I would urge you to hesitate describing yourselves as straight. Because I think as soon as you do that, you concede the point. As soon as you say you're straight, you're conceding the point that sex is identity. And I think that's problematic. I don't think it's as problematic as saying I'm a gay Christian. I don't. But I do think you are conceding a critical linguistic and conceptual point at that moment that will make it difficult to push back or make it more difficult to push back. And the other thing then about Freud is this. As soon as you make uh, sex uh, about identity rather than about behavior, it's only a matter of time before the other shoe falls. Laws about sex, sexual behavior, cease to be laws about sexual behavior and become laws about the kind of people that society considers to be legitimate. And that, of course, sets up the play for the struggles we are engaged in today. Laws about sexual behavior are actually laws about identity. And that's what makes them so tense. In the book, I talk about Wilhelm Reich, uh, a very interesting former assistant of Freud who elaborates this at a theoretical level, but I don't think you need to elaborate it as a theoretical level. I think intuitively, once we start to think of sex as identity, we intuitively start to think of laws about sex as relative to identity. You don't need to be a cultural Marxist or to have read Hegel to start making that kind of connection. So sex becomes profoundly political. It also means, from a Christian perspective, of course, that old-style arguments cease to be as powerful as they once were. When I was at college, the, uh, the line, you know, hate the sin, but love the sinner, sort of worked when talking to friends who'd come out, that kind of thing. That doesn't work anymore, because once you're dealing with somebody who so identifies themselves with the sin, then to hate the sin is to hate the sinner. And I think, you know, here I'm sort of saying we need to think about how to, I think what we were trying to communicate with that old phrase is good. We need to think about how to rephrase it in order to try to communicate that today. So everything changes at this point. We might also say that all of this stuff tilts us towards thinking of other people as primarily problems. How do I get there? Well, I'd say once you start to buy in to Rousseau's idea that human beings are born free and are defined by our autonomy, every other relationship in which one engages is really to be judged on the basis of does this relationship enhance my freedom and my autonomy or does it drag me down in some way? Extreme example, Rousseau himself. Uh, he never marries, but he does live, I think, pretty faithfully with a woman for many, many years. They have five children together, all five of which are taken to the orphanage shortly after birth. In 18th century, that is a death sentence. Some of you may remember those horrific pictures coming out of Romania in the late 80s, early 90s, the Romanian orphanages. That would not have been dissimilar to the kind of orphanages that existed in the 18th century. To put a child there is to sentence the child to death. Why does Rousseau do it? Well, I think he's a selfish pig, 
on one side, but it also makes a kind of perverse sense given his philosophy. What is a child but a potential link in that chain that binds and prevents one from being free? Think about how we think about pregnancy today. I spent a lot of time over the last year reading a lot of uh, uh, pro-abortion feminist literature. It's very interesting how pro-abortion feminists talk about pregnancy. It's an invasion of the body. It's an alien presence. Gosh, if you read Sophie Lewis on the, uh, the impact of pregnancy, you know, it, it sounds that it's just one up from brutal chemotherapy in terms of what it does to a woman's body. The language used is fascinating because the language tilts towards this idea of the baby is a problem. The baby is not a natural product of a natural function for which the female body has an end or a telos. It's an alien invader doing damage. Think about that. I was reading just this morning an article about how birth rates are dropping to catastrophic levels because so many people, some people don't want to bring children into a world that they think is, is going to the dogs. Glad my parents didn't think that way. In Britain in the 1960s, we just assumed that uh, you know, either the Americans or the Russians were going to vaporize us at some point, but my parents still thought it was worth having me, for which I'm very grateful. Uh, I don't think the world is necessarily you know, in, a, in a less stable place today than it was at the height of the Cold War. But it's interesting that some people don't want babies because they don't want to bring children into a dangerous world. More, however, don't want to have babies because, well, it, it hits the bottom line. It damages their finances. It prevents them having those great holidays they want. My wife and I are aware of a couple who had a baby and they have not had a certain medical procedure for their child because... The money could be spent on a holiday. That's a very Rousseau kind of way. You're independent and autonomous. And any obligation, any relationship you contract is contracted, is voluntary, and should preferably lead to your happiness. That is of a piece, I think, with this rise of the psychologized I. Man is born free, and everywhere is in chains. And that is deeply embedded in the way we think today. But just as I'm wrapping up this first lecture, I want to give a hint of where I'm going to go with this. It's self-evident nonsense. It's self-evident nonsense to say that man is born free, and everywhere is in chains. A year, well, 15 months ago, my wife and I became grandparents, and just over a year ago, I was giving a lecture in Lancaster, Pennsylvania, and my son, uh, my oldest son and his wife, came along with uh, little baby Emily. And partway through the lecture, uh, mainly because I wanted to show my granddaughter off, uh, but ostensibly because I wanted to make a point, I asked uh, my son to stand up and hold little Emily up. And I asked the question of the audience, is my granddaughter born free? Self-evidently, the answer is no. Even today, a year on, 
my granddaughter is utterly dependent upon her parents for her survival. When I was younger, uh, my parents, my wife would never let me do this because she's a redentophobe. Uh, I bred hamsters. Uh, hamsters are fascinating. I, I, I think if, if, if there were such a thing as reincarnation, I'm probably a reincarnated hamster. Uh, on the grounds that hamsters, they like their own company. They like their own company. If you breed hamsters, uh, well, first of all, it's dangerous because the female, if the female isn't ready to mate, she will attempt to castrate the male. So when you put the male in the female's cage, you've got to be there with your gloves on to separate them in case the time isn't right. But if uh, the mating goes uh, according to plan, uh, and a few weeks later, a lovely brood of little hamsters are born, 21 days later, you have to start separating them because they'll start killing each other at that point. Hamsters are solitary creatures. They are independent at 21 days. It's arguable that they, they're not quite born free, but they're almost born free. Those of you parents probably know today, 21 years might be a sort of hopeful estimate for the independence of one's children. You know, if they're independent at 21, that's a pretty good record today. Of all creatures on the face of the planet, human beings have to be, if not the most, among the most dependent in terms of their offspring. If you build your anthropology, if you imagine what it means to be human as being free and independent, then you are bound to go horribly wrong because that simply isn't the case. I think what we're talking about today, the challenge that faces the church today is this. It's an anthropological crisis. One might look at the third, I, in a previous incarnation, I was a church historian. Uh, one might look at the third, fourth, fifth century and say the church there is, the big issue is the doctrine of God and then Christology relating to the doctrine of God. You could go to the 16th century and say the big issue there is salvation and the sacraments. Maybe the sacrament, you know, the role of the sacraments becomes the key issue in the Reformation. More ink spilt over the Lord's Supper than over justification by grace through faith. In the present day, it's anthropology. Where is the faith under most threat today? Doctrine of what it means to be human. It is 80 years since C.S. Lewis gave the three lectures that were to become the great book, The Abolition of Man. I was speaking at Calvin University uh, a few weeks ago at a conference on the abolition of man, Lewis's book, and I reread the book in preparation. And I was stunned at how 80 years ago C.S. Lewis anticipated so many of the fundamental issues we face today. He identified a crisis in what it means to be human as the problem facing the church and society in 1943. It's one of those books. You read it and you think he couldn't possibly have known as he was giving these lectures how prophetic they were. He's just speaking as he sees it, but wow, they have become more true in the years since than they even were at the time. There are a few things in those lectures that indicate he's writing in the 1940s. He's writing in the middle of the Second World War, for example. But on the whole, those lectures could have been given yesterday in Houston, Texas. 
We're in an anthropological crisis. The next question then, of course, is this. Well, how was this anthropological crisis that was so brilliantly articulated by thinkers like Rousseau and Freud, how has it become the common currency of the society in which we live? That's the question I want to address in my second lecture. Thank you for listening so patiently.